0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Vertical Church Triad, a vertical church in Jamestown, North Carolina. For more info on our service times and location, visit us at www.verticalchurchtriad.org. You are loved. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. Today is, ready? Today is... You should be embarrassed of yourself. It's Valentine's Day Eve. That's what it is. It's Valentine's Day Eve. And that response tells me that some of you may need to go shopping today after church, all right? So that's your reminder. But check this out. Americans spend $21.8 billion a year on Valentine's Day. That's what they spend in 2021. I just saw one man shaking his head. You should be ashamed of yourself. That's all I'm going to say. You better get out there and buy something, you know, contribute to the pot at least, please. You might find yourself in trouble. Just kidding. But seriously, think about that. 21.8 billion a year. 21% of shoppers buy jewelry. They spend about 5.8 billion dollars a year on jewelry. More than 33% of consumers spent billion on dining out, $2.9 billion on clothing, $2.4 billion on chocolate. And just so you know, that ends up being about 58 million pounds of chocolate. $2 billion on gift cards, $1.3 billion on greeting cards. The average American spent $164.76 last year. Now those are some crazy statistics, but let me share some other crazy statistics. Every 42 seconds, there is one divorce in America. That equates to 86 divorces per hour, 2,046 divorces per day, 14,364 divorces per week, and 746,971 divorces per year. Almost 50% of all marriages in the United States will end in divorce or separation. The statistics are no different within the church. The average first marriage lasts about eight years. Researchers estimate that 41% of all first marriages will end in divorce, 67% of second marriages will end in divorce, and 73% of third marriages will end in divorce. The divorce rate among people 50 and older has doubled in the past 20 years, according to research by Bowling Green State University. Interestingly, the Bible Belt has the highest divorce rate in the country with Oklahoma and Arkansas leading the charge. The Barner Research Group measured divorce statistics by religion. They found that 29% of Baptists are divorced, the highest for a U.S. religious group, while only 21% of atheists and agnostics were divorced. Interestingly, the state that led The nation with the least amount of divorces is probably the state that is hardest to reach with the gospel. It's Massachusetts. I share those statistics with you in order to illustrate to you that what often takes place in the culture often creeps into the church. And this is exactly what was happening with the church at Corinth. And if this is your first time here, we have been going line by line through 1 Corinthians today. We do find ourselves in another difficult topic. It's the topic of divorce. And as we talk about this today, though, let me just say if you are divorced, and let me just add a caveat to that, especially those who may have gotten an unbiblical divorce, which we're going to talk about one is divorce biblical and one is it unbiblical, but if there was an unbiblical divorce that you're a part of, I hope you don't hear words of condemnation this morning. That's certainly not my intention. Sadly, far too many Christians speak out about divorce as if it's the unpardonable sin. And you, if you have been divorced, you've been conditioned to think that you're like the outcast of the church family. And that's simply not true. I hope you don't feel that way here. But there are others of you who think that maybe because um, you have been divorced, you do, though, for some reason, you, you think it's, for some reason, it is an unforgable sin. And, and I just want to say that's a lie of the enemy. Um, what the enemy does, and we went through this whole series at the beginning of the year called Armor Up, but what the enemy does is, is oftentimes he'll use your past sin the past sin that, that, that you committed against Christ, he'll take those sins ill, he'll throw them up in your face and he'll hold them against you. But what we have to understand is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ means that we have been justified by the judge. We've been declared right in the eyes of the Lord. And it doesn't matter what the enemy throws at you. In the eyes of the judge, the one who matters, you are guiltless. And it's because of Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ does this. It frees us from all condemnation. So don't ever feel condemned. At the same time, as we talk about this important topic today, I really want you to hear it really through two lenses. The first lesson I I just shared with you, lens number one, is that the gospel is our absolute hope. But the second lens is the Bible is our absolute authority you got to view it through two lenses. And I think what happens with church members is we love that gospel part and we forget about that Bible authority part. Or we take that Bible authority part really seriously and we end up feeling condemned. And we can't take advantage of what the purpose of the gospel is, which is, hey, you're no longer guilty. So those are the two lenses. Gospel is our absolute hope. The Bible is our absolute authority. And the problem with the church at Corinth is that they were filled with, as we've been saying, they were filled with impurity. They were filled with, we, we define it this way, worldly contaminants. Paul, of course, he's concerned with the Corinthians because the reality is, we all know this, contaminants kill Specifically, they kill the church's ability to reach the culture missionally. And as Paul is writing to the Corinthians about all these contaminants, and as he brings up the topic of divorce, he's fully aware of the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. I hope you understand something about your marriage this morning. Your marriage is your greatest gospel witness, certainly to your children, and definitely to your neighbors, and really to each other here in this room. The reality is simply this. As we live in relationship with one another, you know what we're going to do? You know what we're going to do? We are going to be really good at... Yeah, someone just did this. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, we're going to fight. We are going to sin. We are going to cross one another. And as Christians, and I've said it before, we should be the greatest at modeling what we have first received, what we just celebrated when we gathered around the communion table, which is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Your greatest witness boils down to forgiveness. And Paul had a great concern for the church at Corinth. Specifically, he was worried that this impurity, this contaminant, this mindset of divorce would kill the church's ability to reach the culture missionally. The gospel's at stake in chapters five through seven. It's all about pursuing purity. So let's look at it together. Let me just add this. I'm, I'm, I like to edit on the fly every week. I think I need to add this. I wasn't gonna add it, but I'm gonna add it. Don't mishear me this morning. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, that the marriage is a picture of what? What's it a picture of? Not a trick question, I promise you. It's a picture of what? Yeah, Christ, it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. It beautifully illustrates to the lost the way in which Christ loves his people. Like I am not sharing my opinion when I say things like divorce is your greatest gospel witness. It's driven out of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Read it, study it. We don't have time to go there this morning. But in that passage of Scripture, of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul closes that illustration with a command that was both found at the creation of marriage, and it's reiterated by Jesus when he speaks of marriage. And he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And sadly divorce isn't taken seriously even though it's outlined in God's word. And that's what happened in the church of Corinth. They had disregarded what scripture said about marriage and divorce. In fact, this is crazy. Divorce was more common in the first century than it is today. One first century historian writes that people got married for the purpose of getting a divorce And got divorced for the purpose of getting married again. And it was not uncommon for a person to have been divorced and remarried several times, possibly even up to 20, 25 times. That's a lot of work, let me just tell you. (laughs) So in an effort to keep the contaminant of divorce from killing the church, Paul provides the Corinthians some much-needed instruction. Much needed instruction. And I would say it's much needed for the evangelical church. I would say it's much needed for our church. doesn't matter what your marriage situation is, how good it is, how bad it is, whether or not you're single, we all better listen up because we don't want to be a statistic. Look what Paul does as he provides this instruction. Look at verse 10. He even says, I'm giving you a charge. I like the New American Standard. I'm giving you instruction. If you're a note taker, here's the big idea of the passage Here it is. Here's the charge. Pursue purity by committing to the marriage covenant that Christ created. Pursue purity by committing to the marriage covenant that Christ created. In the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning, Paul shares two marriage commitments for every Christian. Commitment number one, I will submit To Christ's teaching on marriage, I will submit to Christ's teaching on marriage. That word "submit" is a word that we often don't like. Just hearing it makes me want to cringe. To be quite honest with you, what does it mean? It means to accept or yield to a superior. We have to yield to the person in charge. There's a person who has authority over the will of another person. That's what that word "submit" means. And listen, Christian, we have a superior force in our life and here's his name king jesus did you get that you have a superior in your life don't buy into the cultural lie you can't you be you it's not about you you have a superior if you're in the king's kingdom there's one king one king you have a superior And the king's expectation is that for every citizen, not just some citizens like the pastors and the elders and the small group leaders and the good little Christians that go to church every week, his expectation is for every Christian to yield to his authority. In fact, I would say submission in the life of a Christian is not even an option. It's not an option. If you refuse to live in submission, that is called transgression or sin. Okay? We clear? When you refuse to submit, you're choosing sin. And it's our responsibility to yield to the king's authority. That includes what King Jesus says about marriage and divorce and look at what paul writes he says to the married i give this charge not i but the lord the wife should not separate from her husband but if she does she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife so let's stop there for a minute when we read verses 10 and 11 there are some things we immediately know number one paul is writing to married christians That's what we know about this passage. He's writing to married Christians. We're going to see in verses 12 through 16, there's one partner who's saved and one who's lost. But in verses 10 through 11, Paul's writing to married Christians. Second thing we immediately know is it's not Paul's instruction that he's giving us. It's from Christ. He says, not I, but the Lord. Like this is some serious stuff. We all better listen up. So let's do some investigative work together. We're going to just like dive into this passage together. What does Christ say then? What are his instructions on marriage? Well, we first see, number one, basically Christ says, stay married, don't divorce. So if you're taking notes, here's Christ's instruction. Stay married, don't divorce. Look at verse 10. Wife should not separate. Verse 11, husband should not divorce. Here's what's going on. We'll start with verse 10. Most likely, Paul had received some news, probably from Chloe's people. Remember chapter one? Chloe's people are out. You're talking about the church of Corinth. There's a lot of concern about the church of Corinth. Paul receives news from Chloe's people that there was a, a Corinthian Christian woman looking to divorce her husband or separate. That's the word we see here because no doubt the guy was a jerk. He was definitely a jerk. He probably didn't treat her right. He probably didn't know her love language. He was probably playing video games instead of helping out around the house. The dude was a clown and she wants out. She's tired of it. Who wants to live with a jerk? I wish jerks would just reveal themselves before marriage, right? But they don't. And so she's like, I want out. And in in that culture, the Greco-Roman culture, in that world, it was acceptable for a woman to take action and separate from her husband. And Paul reiterates now what Jesus taught. And he says, like, look. It's not okay to separate. In that word, separate, it's not okay to leave. And then he goes on to say that the same is true of the husband. He's like, listen, guy, it doesn't matter if your wife is a nag, it doesn't matter if she runs up the credit card debt, it doesn't matter if she disrespects you. You don't divorce. And listen, this was countercultural. Because divorce was common. And and what Paul is doing here with the Corinthians, he's reiterating Jesus' baseline expectation. Here's the baseline expectation. No divorce for Christians. That's the expectation. Now, let's do some more investigative work. Notice what Paul says about Christ's instruction to his kingdom, citizens, on marriage. Number two, he says, save Mary, don't divorce. Second, he says, If you divorce, stay single or remarry your spouse. Look what he writes. He says, but if she does, and you can just throw in there he too. If she or he does, it's all the same and we'll see that in a minute. She or he should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband or wife. Now, let's talk about this verse for a second. Because if you read verse 11, you're like, is Paul encouraging divorce here? What's going on here? Here's what's going on. Like today, Paul Paul knew that the probability of divorce was a reality even in the church at Corinth. Uh, Listen to this. Sadly, Paul knew that the people at Corinth, like American Christians, would get divorced in spite of what King Jesus says about marriage. Did you hear that? He knew people were just going to disobey God's word. So he says if you get divorced, if you choose that option, if you're going to disobey God, if you're going to disobey the one we're to yield to and submit to, King Jesus, if you're going to choose to put yourself in a position where you are brave enough to actually dismiss what King Jesus says about marriage, all right. Well, if you do that, don't go marry somebody else. He says you're to remain single and celibate with the goal of reconciling to your spouse. You're not free to marry You're not back on the market. And there's some additional investigative work that we must do about Jesus' teaching, though, on marriage that Paul doesn't address to the Corinthians. So be ready to turn your Bible some, or the pictures, the the verses will be on the screen to help you. What I'm about to say next are from the words of Jesus, but they're not in Paul's letter to Corinth, so that's why we're, like, playing detective today. Do you like playing detective? I used to love playing detective as a kid. This is what I do every week with God's Word. It's a lot of fun. All right? So... Christ teaching on divorce, next. What does Christ specifically say? Number one, divorce was not the original design. It was a lifelong covenant. We get that from Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse three, and we're gonna be quick. I'm not gonna talk about all this. I have a lot to say today. Go figure. Starting in verse three. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. So here are the Pharisees. They're trying to corner Christ. They're, they're, They're famous for that. They're trying to catch him in a trap. He said, and they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Because what the, what, the, what the Jews would do, like, if the wife, like, overcooked a meal, it's like, you're out. Divorce. No, no foot rub. Boom. Divorce. Like, I'm not playing. Like, that's how the Jewish culture was. And interestingly, um, the wife in the Jewish culture couldn't divorce the husband. Only the husband could divorce the wife. It's not true in the Greco-Roman culture. But if you read Matthew and what Christ's teaching is on divorce, which is where we are right now, and compare it with some teaching to Mark, Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, so they would have understood some things. Mark was written to the world at large. Specifically, that was the target audience. So, So there's not confusion that's going on. You have to take into consideration the original context whenever you interpret Scripture. So this is really bizarre. The the, the Pharisees are trying to corner Christ. is it lawful? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, go back to the Jewish culture. Originally, Adultery was punishable by death in the Jewish culture. Why? Malachi 2, verses 14 through 16. You can go check that one out later. Super important verse if you want to understand God's view of marriage, which is way higher than ours. Malachi makes the point that marriage is a covenant between man, woman, and God. And when you break that covenant, God hates it. That's what the verse says. He hates divorce. What divorce was, was a concession when adultery took place, so not every Jewish male was getting killed. That's what it was. It was an alternative for the death penalty. So so we've got to be clear on something here, and I can't dive into all this. Maybe we'll do a divorce series someday, but divorce was not the original design. It was a lifelong covenant. That's what marriage was. Number two. Divorce is occasionally allowable. We see that in verses 7 through 9. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. Then they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And I already kind of gave it away because everybody was getting divorced and everybody was going to die. And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, because you disregarded God's law, because you didn't take what the king said seriously. That's what he's saying there. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives But from the beginning, when marriage was created, it was not so. Divorce wasn't an option. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and this is really important, you might want to underline this, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So what Jesus is teaching here in this situation is, yes, divorce is Occasionally allowable. And the exception, we see, it's very clear, is adultery. Third, and and, and let me just say this. It's not encouraged. Did you see that? It's still not encouraged. It's just allowed. Third, divorce is often sinful. It's often sinful. Matthew chapter 5, 31-32 It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See what's going on here? Jesus is saying, if you choose to get divorced and then you go get remarried, it's like committing adultery. We've talked a lot about how much God hates sexual sin. I can't keep going backwards, but keep it within the context of everything that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And this whole idea of purity. And how important it is to Christ. And so he says, "Like, hey, divorce often becomes sinful because, and we've even talked about this, especially last week, we all have these cravings. We have these sexual cravings. And if you were married, it means you don't have the gift of celibacy. You have the gift of marriage. There's two gifts, marriage and celibacy in chapter seven. You don't have the gift of celibacy. That's why you ended up married. So what's going to happen when you get divorced is you're going to put yourself in a position where you're going to sin against God and get remarried. And now it's like committing adultery. Adultery. Notice, let me just say this. Look, at this. look at these stats, super interesting. Here are the top reasons for divorce in our culture today. 1.2%, they say, are communication issues. Not a good reason for divorce. 5.8% domestic violence and addiction. Let me just say this. If you find yourself in that situation, you need to contact us, and we need to contact the authorities immediately. You don't keep yourself in that situation. It's a dangerous situation. And we will help you navigate that situation. And if you find yourself in that situation, most likely you're married to an unbeliever, and we'll talk about that later. Okay? Top five reasons. Communication issues, domestic violence. Third, infidelity in affairs. And this is the one that Jesus is like, hey, here's where it's, here's where it's okay. Third, With 28% infidelity affairs. Oh, sorry, I missed money. Money, 22%. Hey, here's a plug for Financial Peace University. I've experienced this in marriage counseling, by the way. Money matters. It does. It matters to all of us. Money matters. When you find yourself in a difficult financial situation, it adds a tremendous amount of stress on couples both individually and together. Can I encourage you, if you have never taken Financial Peace University, l- listen, this is not a plug for the class. I don't get a cut. Maybe I should call them. Maybe I can get a cut. I don't get a cut. We don't get any of it. What we're charging is their charge. Especially, I would say every family needs to go through that class because I've done a lot of marriage counseling and money ends up causing a lot of stress, okay? And if you can't afford to be in that class, we'll help you, we'll figure it out. But then you have affairs, and then, and then the largest one though, 43%, four out of 10, lack of commitment or incompatibility. And that's super subjective, isn't it? Ah, they're not committed. They didn't do it my way, they're not committed. I don't like them anymore, they changed. And maybe they did. I'm just saying those are the top five reasons, but those reasons don't fit in the category that Jesus gives us. And divorce ends up being sinful. Fourth, Christ's teaching on divorce. Divorce creates major issues. And like what we just talked about, adultery after divorce, remarriage questions, it has tremendous amount of effects on children, effects on the body of Christ. There are major implications To divorce. And here's Paul's point. Paul's point is simply this don't do it. Don't do it. So, really practically, how do we keep ourselves from getting to this point? Well, here's what we do we follow Jesus' instruction that he gave in the Garden of Eden. You know what's really cool? Think about Jesus in the Garden of Eden. John 1 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, Word was God, right? Word meaning Jesus. Jesus was at creation. He was in chapter one, he's referred to in chapter one as Elohim. But in chapter 2, this is so cool, this is mind-blowing, the name of God changes. He's called Elohim in chapter 1, but in chapter 2, he's referred to as Jehovah. A covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And what does he do in chapter 2? He creates marriage because the intent of Jehovah, Yahweh, is he wants things done his way. And his way for marriage is called covenant-keeping He doesn't just call himself Elohim to create something and let you run with something. He says, I am Jehovah. I am covenant keeping, and you are to keep to this commitment. That's why we pursue purity by committing to the covenant that Christ created. And what does he say in Genesis chapter two, verse 24? It's also in Mark. It's also in Matthew. He says this, therefore, a man this is how men and women, this is how you keep yourself out of divorce right here. Like we have the blueprint. Your marriage doesn't have to be as messy as you make it. I, trust me. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm just saying it doesn't have to be as hard as we make it. What does he say? Therefore, here's the blueprint. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. So leave, hold fast. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, Christ says in Mark, what God has joined together, what Jehovah has joined together, what the covenant-keeping God has joined together, let no man separate. Like, think about this verse, hold fast, cleave. You know what that word means in the Hebrew? It literally means to be glued together. It's like super glue. It's, it means stuck on you. That's what it means. Stuck on you. The two are one, they're joined, they're inseparable. And listen, for a marriage to work, it means you have to cleave, you have to function as one. You're giving up individualism and independence and the lie that culture tells you that you deserve to be happy and you deserve to be free and you deserve to you be you and all that stuff that our culture tells us is important. Jesus says you're giving up individualism. Listen, healthy marriages, they don't consist of a husband and wife who live independently from each other. They just don't. Now, this doesn't mean there's a loss of personality or individuality. That's not what I'm saying. But what it does mean is that there's a lifelong union to each other, a partnership in every area of life. You're going to share life together. And here's what it looks like to bind yourself. Really practically, you bind yourself this way. You bind yourself intellectually. Like, listen, if you want to be bound together, if you want to be, like, stuck on each other, if you want, like, this connected at the hip, you better bind yourself together intellectually. Share what you're learning. Maybe it's even through scripture or just whatever, at work, like, Like, share your thoughts intellectually. Consider your spouse's ideas and insights. Like, be open minded. Like, realize you aren't the authority on everything. Be teachable. Learn things together. So, bind yourself intellectually. Second, bind yourself emotionally. Honestly, communicate your feelings. Super important. Communicate your feelings. I wish I knew how to say it in Spanish, I wish I knew how to say it in French. I wish I knew how to say it in German, getting my point. Bind yourself emotionally and honestly communicate your feelings. And allow your spouse to express their feelings because their feelings are real to them. And then let's just talk about socially. Bind yourself socially. Like, have some common hobbies. Like, have fun together. Go out and do something. Pick up a hobby. We love to walk. We're talking about this week. It's gonna be warm enough to walk this week. Can't wait. So you're like, that's so lame. Your hobby doesn't have to be my hobby, okay? Get your own hobby, and then you can be critical. But have some common hobbies. I would add to this: have couple friendships. It's okay to have friends, but you, I would, I would really encourage you when you're together, like Listen, if you're always on Girls Night and always on Guys Night, I'm not saying don't do them. I'm just saying that's not super healthy. Have couple friendships. Financially, bind yourself financially. I would say one bank account, two names on the title. You buy a car, both names are on there. You buy a house, both names are on there. You have a bank account, both names are on there. I don't trust them. All right, I'm just telling you. We're together. And come talk to us and we'll help you. But trust me, I'm trying to help you (laughs) romantically. Find yourself romantically. Every couple should have a date night, every couple should go on vacation. My wife and I were getting ready to cruise out of town on March 10th to 13th. We almost canceled it because we're just so busy. And I was preparing this sermon and I said, convictionally, we have to go. I don't want to go, I don't have time to go. It's probably going to add more stress to my life. In a lot of other areas, but it's going to help my marriage, so we're going to go. you got to do it. How about this one? Know each other's love languages. Hey, men, I hope you did the homework last week. You're serious about marriage when you take this stuff that you're receiving and you're like, you, 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 you impart it. And I'm not judging you. I'm just saying, like, you got to step up and lead. you got to step up and lead. Good, good marriages don't happen on their own. They're not hard, but they do require leadership. So step up and lead. I'm encouraging you to lead. I'm coaching you to lead. Please step up and lead. Know the love languages. Practice those love languages. Make it your goal to meet those love languages. And then last but not least, spiritually, spiritually. Read and discuss God's word together. Come to church together. Join a small group together. Serve in the church together. Share your spiritual struggles. Share your spiritual growth. Repent of sin together. Ask for forgiveness. Be quick to forgive. We already talked about that. But listen, there's no better glue in a marriage than the glue of spiritual growth. I hope you write that down. There's no better glue in marriage than the glue of spiritual growth. If you have two people pursuing hard after Jesus, let me tell you, you're gonna have something sweet. Because when you're pursuing hard after Jesus... You're taking the mind of Jesus and you're becoming a servant and you're seeking to outserve your spouse. And when you have two people seeking to outserve their spouse because they've taken on the mind of Christ, you're going to have something super, super sweet. And I would even say this even if there's only one in the marriage taking on that mindset, not all the time, but it's very likely that your marriage will make it. It will make it. pursue purity by committing to the marriage covenant that Christ created. Notice the second commitment every Christian must make about marriage. Make this commitment ahead of time, alright? You've got to make this commitment ahead of time. Here it is, number two. I will surrender to God's calling in marriage. I will surrender to God's calling in marriage. In verse 12, Paul switches the audience of the reader from married Christians to Christians who are married to an unsaved spouse. Look at verse 12. He says, to the rest I say, He's talking to a different group of people here. And he's saying staying married when a couple is unequally yoked, meaning both of them don't know Jesus as Savior, staying married when a couple is unequally yoked, Paul's going to say it's really difficult. We're going to see later on in Corinthians that Paul, in fact, he gives some instruction on who a person is to marry. And and just as as a brief side note, singles in the room, you need to make two decisions right now. So this is for the singles. And I guess this is applicable to all of us, but singles, two things. Number one, I will marry a Christian. Like you gotta decide that right now. I will marry a Christian. And if you're making that decision of I will marry a Christian, what do you think that then means? It means I will only date Christians, I want to encourage you to do that. Make that decision right now. I will only marry Christians. Therefore, I will only date Christians. And we're going to talk about some of this even later on, about this whole idea of being unequally yoked. And then make this decision. Number two, I will not get divorced. And if you're in marriage and you've never made that commitment and that decision, you need to make that decision. I will not get divorced. The decision needs to be made now, not when the marriage gets difficult Because it's going to get hard. There are going to be seasons. There are going to be rocky seasons. We've been through some of those rocky seasons. We're experiencing the sweetness right now in our marriage of making that decision that we will never get divorced. And we worked on things together, even during those hard times. And the Lord grew us together. And now we understand each other a whole lot better. And it works. Back to the text. Paul is targeting marriages where one is saved, one is lost. There are some, maybe, of you in our church today, maybe you find yourself in that position. You've experienced the tension. You've experienced the difficulties. You've experienced the different priorities. Maybe it's over education, whether it's homeschool or public school or Christian school, or maybe it's even church attendance. You know, you want your kids to be in the church and growing up in the church and being a part of the youth group, which I would encourage all parents to do by the way your kids need as much discipleship that's made available to them but maybe you find yourselves at odds with each other you find it difficult to be on the same page well an unequally yoked marriage is hard and for some reason, what, what ends up happening, and Paul's writing this, he says, we, we end up thinking it's so much better to get divorced, and it's be better for you, and it's to be better for your children spiritually. And that's exactly what was happening at Corinth, by the way. That's why Paul's bringing this up. People were coming to know Jesus, and they're like, I'm done with my old self, and I'm pursuing hard after Jesus, and my spouse isn't. So I just got to get out of this mess. I'm going to leave my spouse. And let me just say, the tension's real. What does Paul say? He says, don't do it. He says, don't do it. And and he explains, you know, pursuing purity by committing to the covenant that Christ created. It means surrendering to God's calling. and, and, And then he gives you the reason why we shouldn't do it. It's because some may end up being saved. And so he says in verses 12 through 14, remain in the marriage. That's why you don't leave the spouse when it gets difficult. Remain. Verses 12 and 13, he says, He should not divorce her. She should not divorce her. Paul says, No divorce, no divorce. And here's the reason why. Look at verse 14. It's on the screen. Next slide. He says, Four. Four. Here's the reason why. The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Here's what's going on here. These Corinthians were thinking, i got to get out of here. I'm going this way. He's going this way. We're two different people. I'm a new creature. He's an old creature. I'm trying to live purely. He's trying to live sinfully. i got to get out. And Paul's like, no, no. Surrender to God's calling in marriage and remain in the marriage. And the reason why you remain in the marriage isn't isn't maybe even for your good, but it's for their good. It's about holiness. Now this isn't, (laughs) I heard one guy, J.D. Greer, he says this isn't holiness by osmosis. I thought that was pretty hilarious. Paul's not saying that if you're saved, your spouse is saved and your children are saved, because he also wrote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where he says, for by grace are you saved. What Paul is saying is simply this, and please hear this: the best way for your unbelieving spouse and your unbelieving children to come to the faith is through your perseverance in the marriage. It's the best way. That word "holy," it means set apart. And Paul's saying, you're setting them apart to hear the gospel and to see the gospel in high def. We all want a nice high def TV to watch the game tonight. We want to see it live. We want to see it in action. We want a good view. And Paul's like, let your kids see the gospel in high def. Two great study Bibles that everybody, you need to own one of these. And I've given these shameless plugs before. Again, no commission, but you need to get one. Either a MacArthur study Bible or an ESV study Bible. MacArthur study Bible or ESV study Bible. What they do is they take these hard hard passages of scripture, and um, they make them easier for dumb people like me to understand, okay? MacArthur says this. He explains verse 14 this way. This is great. He says, one Christian, and this is in a study Bible. This is why you should get one. He says this, one Christian in a marriage brings grace that spills over on the spouse, even possibly leading them to salvation. Isn't that awesome? One Christian in the marriage brings grace that spills over on the spouse and even possibly leading them to salvation. The ESV study Bible says this, the unbelieving spouse and children in a family with a believing spouse are not saved by this association, but they do come under the believing spouse's Christian influence. And so Paul notes that they are much more likely to be saved in due course through their own faith. That's what we're talking about here. And I remember witnessing this personally. I remember when I was a a kid, there was this um, couple in our church named the Mitchells. And the husband, Jack, he was was a dentist. He was like head of the dental association in the whole Boston area. I mean, he was big time. And his wife, and I can't even remember her name right now, but I guess it doesn't matter. Do you remember the name? Jennifer. 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 Who names their kid Jennifer? It's Jennifer, all right? Jennifer. And she loved the Lord, and he was a really difficult man to live with. He hated Christ. He hated Christians. If a Christian, if one of our Christian friends came over to the house, he wouldn't even acknowledge them, he wouldn't even say hi to them. Really, he remained in the marriage not so much for his wife, it was more for the children. He mocked Christians. He mocked the faith of his wife. He even mocked the faith of his children. And yet, she stuck it out. And over time, this guy, Jack Mitchell, comes to know Christ. And and get this. He sells his dental practice. He sells his dental practice. And they became missionaries to third world countries. And now they serve together on the mission field Doing dental work. Yeah, yeah. And listen, it was because of Jennifer. (laughs) That's what we're talking about here. She took a hard truth of scripture, a very hard truth of scripture. And she said, I'm gonna obey this scripture. And God used her to save her husband and and her children are, are both in ministry. This is our hope. And this is what brings glory to God when we pursue purity in this way. However, let me be honest with you, every story doesn't end that way. They don't all end that way. Sadly, in spite of the saved spouse's commitment to the marriage and their testimony in the marriage, sometimes the unsaved spouse leaves. And for some, that's God's call for you as well. And you need to surrender to that call. And that's what Paul says here. Verses 15 through 16, he makes the point that God calls some to be released from the marriage. God will release you from the marriage. Paul writes in verse 15 that if the unbelieving partner separates, he says, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. They're not bound. They're no longer restrained by the marriage covenant. You're free to, to remarry. And he says, here's why. Because God has called you to peace. He's called you to relational peace. In verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul's simply saying, if the unbelieving spouse chooses to go, like, like hey, get it. We've been praying for him. And we want him to come to know Christ. But if they make that decision, release it to the Lord. Release it to the Lord. Now, really quickly, practically, how do we remain in a difficult marriage, whether the spouse is saved or unsaved? Because some of you find yourself in a marriage where your spouse is unsaved, and then some of you find yourself in a, in a marriage where, where, where um, your spouse is saved, but there's just not a great spouse. What do we do? How do we remain in a difficult marriage? Really practically, just really quickly, here we go. You better write quick. Number one, reject the Christian cultural lies. Reject the Christian cultural lies. Notice I said the Christian cultural lies because not only does our culture speak lies into us, but Christians speak lies into us. They say things like, God is a God of love and he wants you to be happy. That is a big Christian cultural lie. And I hope none of us would ever Encourage someone with that lie if you find yourself counseling someone whose relationship is on the rocks. Never make a decision based upon God's character while violating his clear commands. You might want to write that down. Never make a decision based upon God's character while violating God's clear commands. It's like the ultimate act of disrespect to God. You're using his character and you're violating his clear command. The two go hand in hand. We got to figure that out. And I know it's a a healthy tension. That's why I said before, come talk to who? Us. Listen, if you're, uh, all right, I know I'm going off, but here's the deal. If you're talking to your unregenerate coworker about your marriage and they're counseling you, or any Christian who's not walking in the spirit and they're counseling you on your marriage, you're making a really bad decision. You're making a bad decision. Come talk to the right people. So reject the Christian cultural lies. Number two, remember the purpose of marriage. Remember the purpose of marriage. What's the purpose of marriage? The purpose of your marriage is God's glory, not your personal happiness. Boy, that stinks. Because let's be honest, the majority of the time, I'm more consumed about Matt being happy than God's glory. I'm just being honest. The purpose of marriage, though, is God's glory, not happiness. You can go back to Ephesians 5. I love this quote by Piper. Marriage is not mainly about being or staying in love. It's mainly about telling the truth with our lives. It's about portraying something true about Jesus Christ and the way he relates to his people. It is about showing in real life the glory of the gospel. That's in his book, This Momentary Marriage. I encourage you to get it. Listen, Christian, every part of our life, including your marriage, is to showcase God's supremacy and his glory. Matthew 5:16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others. Right? This is Jesus, the same context when he talks about marriage. Matthew 5:16, let your light so shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father. So Reject Christian cultural lies. Remember the purpose of marriage. Number three, remind yourself of what's at stake. Remind yourself of what's at stake. We already talked about it, but here's what's at stake. Salvation and sanctification. Salvation for your children, salvation for the spouse, sanctification for each other. All right, remember what's at stake. Number four, reach out to others for help. Already talked about that, but I love Galatians chapter. Oh, let, let me just say, Next to number three, remind yourself of what's at stake. You can go to 1 Peter chapter three, verses one and two. It talks about the wife living in such a way that it brings her husband into the gospel. Number four is reach out to others for help. Galatians chapter six, verse two. We are a community of believers that should be bearing each other's burdens. Sometimes it's the burden of marriage. Reach out to people. We already talked about that. Fifth, run to the Savior. Run to the Savior the spouse that you want is not your savior. We all have these false saviors. If my spouse would just be a spiritual leader, that's not your savior. It's not your savior. We have one savior. His name is Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So set your mind on the right savior. You want deliverance in your marriage? Stop running to these false saviors and focus on the correct savior. Sixth, rely on Christ to redeem the situation. Rely on Christ to redeem the situation. You have no power in and of yourself to change your spouse. I tell people all the time in counseling, you can't change your spouse but you can change you. Can't change your spouse, but you can change you. Rely on Christ to redeem the situation. As I was reflecting on Paul's teaching and that the only way we can commit to the marriage covenant is by taking on this mindset of the, of the Savior, I, I was... I was reminded of the old hymn, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. Raise your hand if you if you remember that hymn, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. What a powerful hymn it is. And we're gonna sing it. But before we do, let me walk you through the lyrics. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. By his love and power controlling, all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through his power. May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything that I may be calm to comfort, sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, him exalting, self-abasing. This is victory May we run the race before us, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as we onward go. Let's stand together. My prayer is that we will sing this song as a response of commitment. And if you find yourself in a hard marriage, I want to make myself available to you to help you as best I can. We love you and we love Jesus. And we want your marriage to be used for the glory of Jesus Christ. The fact that you're here today tells me that that you want that too. So I invite you to work on that together. Let's sing to our Lord.